This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate Is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. My name is Richard White. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Good Lord. And what I like about probably technology is it's a massive market and there's great opportunity there and we're only just getting started. Technology is changing a lot of industries, including real estate. And it's not just in the US, it's a truly global movement. When you're teaching people a new way of doing things, it's not always easy because they're not always accepting of it. As an entrepreneur, how many times can you hear the word no and not give up? But is persistence enough to transform an entire industry? From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With real estate tech entrepreneur Thomas Kutzman and business development expert Scott Pollock. We're very fortunate to have a great guest with us today, uh, all the way from the UK. Um, but first, a quick shout out. We just wanted to thank Tom Lambert of Global Founders Capital, uh, who's kind enough to introduce us to uh, to Richard. Uh, and uh, you know, without further ado, let me welcome uh, Richard White, the CEO of Good Lord. Hey guys, hello again. You're joining us from the UK. Uh, I hope everything is going well over there. And uh, we just wanted to kick things off and learn a, a little bit more about the rental market in the UK. You know, we're we're based out of New York, so uh, if you give us a little background on uh, you know how you started on your journey and uh, and what the rental experience was like before, good lord. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I started off as a real estate agent. Um, but needless to say, um, I didn't wake up one day as a small child and always thought that I was going to do that. Um, uh, I kind of fell into it. You know, I, I went to university and university wasn't for me. And I, I ended up um, running parties, club nights, and uh, also uh, promoting for bands and artists. Uh, but my parents were like, look, you need to get a, a proper job. Uh, I didn't know what one of them was, so I kind of fell into being an estate agent, driving a mini around in central London and renting properties out to out to people. Um, and it was there when I just thought, hey, look, this is crazy. Like, um, it was just when Uber started uh, up in the UK, um, doing their luxury cars that you could, um, you know, order for a tap of a phone. And I just thought in this day and age, like, why is it such a horrible experience to rent anywhere? It's super fragmented. People are still using fax machines. They're scanning things over, uh, using checks. You know, it was just, it was just awful. And, and, and that, it was that kind of uh, point that I thought we've got to do something about this. It's kind of refreshing to hear that the uh, horribleness of the rental experience is something you feel across the pond. It's not just local to us in the U.S., yeah, I mean, that's the great thing, you know, um, the, you know, we've gone on this journey and the, the more we speak to people in different countries, we learn that, you know, this is a global problem. Um, you know, it's one of the most, um, it's, it's, it's a basic human need to live in a property. Um, and when it's so stressful and it's so emotional uh, to go through the process of, of moving in, but also when you're in it, um, you know, I just don't 
see why we're in this place right now. Um, and it, like you said, it's a global problem. So um, hopefully uh, someone's uh, going to come through and fix this, not just in the UK and the US, but uh, all over. And what is it specifically about Good Lord? How are you sort of attacking this problem and helping to try to solve it? So we're attacking it in a very boring way, I think, um, <laughs> but the right way. Um, you know, I think on the spectrum, we looked from discovery, how do we find a property right the way through to I'm in a property, um, how do we property manage it? And we looked at that spectrum of, of where things go wrong because that whole ecosystem, the whole experience is broken. And obviously, you know, it'd be very crazy for a company to go in and say, look, I'm going to change the whole thing at once. Um, but we thought, hey, the transaction, no one really is making the transaction easy. And there's a few kind of companies that were in the space, like a DocuSign and, um, you know, a few payment companies. But there was no one tying it all together and saying, actually, we're going to make the transaction easy. And, and for us, strategically, um, we felt that was the right place to start. And it actually, uh, we believe, holds the key to unlocking all these um, issues surrounding the, the entire um, life cycle of, of rental. So um, hey, Richard, when you talk about the transaction and, and it not being as easy as it could be, et cetera, what do you mean exactly? So, I mean, in London, and I'm sure it's the same in a lot of places, when you decide you want to rent a place, that whole process from, you know, drawing up documents to getting documents signed to transferring money to due diligence being done on parties, uh, all of that stuff um, you need to do in order to have um, an agreement in place where someone's going to give you the keys to a property and, and everyone's going to feel comfortable. And when you look at the UK market, why do you think the UK market's been you know, more receptive of real estate technology compared to you know, other markets globally? Um, I think that, I mean, I'm not sure if, if it is. I mean, I think there's, uh, the US has done a great job uh, in, the, uh, in, the prop, uh, in the property technology sector. Uh, specifically around the consumer-based uh, applications of it. Um, so I think that's what's been done very well, but I think it's almost those companies tackled those problems uh, too soon. Um, but I think uh, specifically, um, I think there's a number of different factors in the UK, which is driving adoption. I mean, it's not always been plain sailing. I mean, I look back to three, three and a half, four years ago when we started, and we were having to convince people that e-signing was legal. And actually, you know, people have been using it for several years and, and you know, you could do it. Um, and now there's no, no question. Um, but I think there's been a number of different factors um, that, that played into the hands. Over in the UK, we've got a lettings fee ban coming in, so it's going to be illegal for anybody to, to charge tenants fees, uh, whether that's to register a deposit or, or all of these other things. But there's new online um, online estate agencies which um, are driving down costs. So, what are some of those fees like before, just so we can put it into context? So uh, a place that I used to work, we used to charge, um, I think it was 500 pounds uh, in total. Um, so quite a big chunk. Just um, to apply for and potentially get the apartment? 
Yeah, so it was to get the apartment. There was a few unscrupulous people out there that you'd pay money not knowing that you'd get it. And for me, I think that's that's very wrong um, because you're paying money and you don't get anything for it potentially. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, and I think, is it fair that people should pay uh, their way and, and help out? You know, a tenant should do that. Yeah, potentially I do, depending on how much it is. But do I think the industry has gone too far and um, too many companies have, have taken the mick uh, and charged too much and taken advantage? So, you know, they've just had to regulate. And w when you look at your, your product, obviously you're a software platform. How do you look at your customers and the, the segments within your customer base of the of the services you're providing them and, and what are the costs uh, of those services? Yeah. So, um, if you take the estate agents we sell to, so, um, we kind of think of them in, uh, in, th in three kind of buckets. You've kind of got the, uh, the emerging, um, and they might just have, um, one offices to three, um, and that's like a, a brand. So say, like if I had my own estate agency, White & Co, we might have three offices. That's kind of like one segment. Then you've got three to uh, say 13 offices, um, and then you've got 13 upwards. So we, we bucket in how big and how many transactions they do. I mean, it's quite different. I mean, a footnote here is that the, the market in the UK is quite different to the US. I think we're more, um, you know, there's not individual realtors uh, that go around here in the UK, which operate like a one person uh, operation. It tends to be a big uh, company, an umbrella company, and uh, and all those people work for that company and they do what that company says. Uh, but we do segment them in terms of volume um, to help us kind of demonstrate the, the kind of return on investment and to uh, be able to kind of put context around the, the problems we're going to be solving for them as a segment. And you, you, earlier you mentioned the word ecosystem, which to me suggests that you're not just solving problems for the letting agent or the real estate agent. You're, you're looking at a more holistic picture of who has problems that you're trying to solve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, what makes me jump out of bed every morning is, hey, renting's crap. We're going to fix it. And that's, that's the general thing that I think is the whole ecosystem and the whole environment for tenants, landlords, and agents is fundamentally broken. I mean, as a market, as an industry, we can do better than what we're doing. Um, and I will not keep on jumping out of bed and coming into the office. I will, <laughs> I will stop jumping out of my bed and coming into the office the day that we can say, actually, it's never been better to rent a property uh, in this country and a few others. And you know, we've kind of fixed that problem when other people can't. So in order to do this, we know that we can't just sell a product to estate agents. We know that we have to, what we say is get the team back together. We need to take all the key stakeholders and we need to get them understanding a new set of rules and get them to play together um, in creating this new environment and way of renting, which kind of is fair and works for everyone. And and how did you get over that initial learning curve, right? You're, so you, you've been very successful the last few years. How were those early days of getting people over that sort of educational hump and, and getting that early adoption uh, from your customer base? I mean, it was massively hard. Like it was really, really hard. I mean, I think back, 
Um, you know, like I mentioned before, we were convincing people or having to convince people that electronic digital signing was legal. Um, so it's a, it's a, it was, and still is, a extremely untechnically sophisticated industry. So was not there, only have was there a particular you know breakthrough moment or a you know specific memory that you have that was the sort of the initial inflection point. Uh, not really, uh, not particularly. Um, I think it was just a persistent uh, persistence that we had going out to the market, saying the same thing, saying that you need to not, you need to be more operational efficient, you need to be more customer centric, you need to be giving people a better service. And, and maybe I missed that point because I got so frustrated doing the sales calls. I mean. Bearing in mind, we, we rewind back. I mean, when you start a business, you do everything. It got to a point where I was feeling physically sick with doing sales calls because, you know, I was talking to people that just didn't get it and uh, and didn't want to get it, didn't want to help themselves. And just saying, oh, I just don't understand what you do and why I need it. Things are working uh, as they are. And, you know, I remember one conversation um, to, to a chap when he was like, I love it when tenants come in. I want to sit down, feel the paper in my hands and watch them sign it and look at them in the eyes. And I was just thinking, you're crazy. (laughs) I couldn't do like it got to a point where I just had to retract from that. And because otherwise I was just becoming too emotional about it. Yeah, there, there, I mean, there's there's always going to be those those few customers that you just you know will never be able to convince. But uh, obviously that persistence, you know, definitely, uh, you know, got you to fight through. But back then. It was the majority of customers. That's the thing that we forget with the property industry is it wasn't just the 20% of early adopters. There wasn't a 20% of early adopters. It it was a much, much smaller amount. So it wasn't the case of what you would do is submit your market. And, you know, obviously we did that and, you know, we try to find those early adopters, but they were few and far between. There's a lot more now and it's very, very different. But back then, three years ago, it wasn't. I mean, even just a few years ago, people weren't embracing technology in the real estate industry in the UK. Were they just holding on to hundreds of years of uh, legacy approaches to how they do business? Yeah. I mean, look, they still had on-prem software. Quite a few people do, running off a server in their um, their office. You know, have got a CD-ROM. Um, I mean, or just a big filing cabinet with... Uh, with files behind them that, that they couldn't or wouldn't get rid of. Um, I mean, pretty backwards, and it still is. We've gotten a great introduction to the UK rental market, and uh, Richard, you know, coming up next, we'll we'll delve a little bit deeper into you know, the impact you're having with Good Lord and learn a little bit more about your entrepreneurial journey. Real estate is your business is presented by Preview. Find out how smart home buyers get more with Preview by visiting previewapp.com backslash buyer. That's P-R-E-V-U-A-P-P dot com backslash buyer. Keep up with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Real Estate Biz Show and with hashtag MouthMedia. Plus, check out all of the Mouth Media Network shows at MouthMediaNetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. So, Richard, we just want to take a you know quick step back and 
and really examine sort of your impact on the UK market and what other entrepreneurs, you know, in the real estate or prop tech space that can can learn from from your experiences so far. What what do you th- how would you define your impact thus far? Um so I think our impact has been um it's been driving things forward and making people raise their game. Um, I like to think that a lot of the incumbents are feeling a little bit uncomfortable um, and they're having to really think long and hard about the service they give and, you know, who they are as, as what they are as a company and who they are and, and, and the why of, of why their company exists. And does that why um, still resonate in three, four years time? Um, so I think I'd like to think that we're generally raising the bar of, of you know, uh, the standard in, in the UK. Understood. And as far as how you how you think about the next steps, or you mentioned the next year, three, five years. So how do you sort of map that that vision for for not only from where you've come, but from where you're going? Because the product will, I'm sure, look much different in you know three to five years. Yeah, so, um, I mean, yeah, I really hope it does. <laughs> no, <laughs> I um, yeah, so um, I think we talk about our long-term vision and our mission um, daily, weekly. What is your long-term mission, by the way? Um, so our mission is um, to make renting as easy and as transparent for everyone. Understood. And... You know, you've we talked earlier about you know, this tremendous success you've had over the last three years. You know, I've you know we've we've spoken about and I've I've read in articles that you've gone from you know eleven people to you know close to one hundred and thirty. Uh, you know, last I I checked in and you know how did how did that sort of massive growth? How was that experience? You know, scaling your business. It's a, I I think scaling your business is. Um, is really, really hard. And I think, um, uh, you know, the biggest challenge that any entrepreneur faces um, is uh, going from um, a business of 11 um, or whatever it is and scaling that up. I mean, not every business needs to scale from, you know, two people up to 130, up to, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people. Uh, but the ones that do, um, I mean, it's really tough. I mean, especially as a first-time founder, I mean, you need to continue to uh, make sure that you acquire new skills because the skills that require that you require to start the business, to get it off the ground, uh, to take it from two to 11 people and get some initial traction are very, very different skills that, that are needed to take it further. So for me, it's been the constant learning, which has been the challenge and making sure that um, we don't fall into any of the traps and, and getting complacent. Like, What are some of those challenges and traps that you're referring to? So, I mean, being honest, that the people that you hire when you, you know, you're growing from three people to five to 11 are not the people that are probably going to scale you to 100, 130, 1,000. Um, I mean, 
if, if you do, if you've got those people and you manage to hire them from day one, then like fantastic, great, great for everyone. Do you know upfront whether or not the people that you're bringing in in the first dozen are going to be the ones that can, can scale with you? Or is that something you only realize after the fact? I, I think when you're starting out and you're doing it for the first time, it's it's something you realize after the fact. I would struggle um, to think that if someone's not done it before and known what to look for, um, would would be cognizant of that. Or even if you're cognizant of it, have the kind of, uh, you know, the, the perspective to see it. Now, when you talk about the early days and, you know, you said you're a first-time founder, uh, how is that sort of journey to find your co-founder was it just sort of serendipity or was it you know did you go out and seek that that sort of co-founding team it was serendipity really i mean we ended up renting together so we we rented a house together and we were going out for beers um and we we like we were thinking about all these different companies that we could start um you know a few in and around property like you said a few others um, but we really landed on this. Um, uh, so it was really luck. Um, were you guys friends and renting a house together because you knew each other for a long time? Or was it more of a random pairing that serendipity brought together? Random pairing. We just put together um, and got on. And How and, did you get together? Um, we were just putting a house randomly together. And... Uh, and- and and how is that sort of you know friendship you know co-founding sort of unit how does how has that evolved over time? Um, so it's definitely changed. I mean, uh, my original um, you know co-founder that I started with, he's no longer in the business, but his brother is. Um, so you know there was really three um, co-founders. Um, you know, uh, Philip of which has gone off to um, start a new business. Um, I mean, that. That seems like a kind of interesting scenario. Does that introduce its own set of unique challenges to have both business and family kind of in the mix here? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, um, I think you know, speaking candidly, and um, me being outside that family group, you know, you can start to. There are times when you think, oh, you know, I'm I'm not so in their club. You know, they've they've got a strong connection. Uh, that you know, although we're good friends and we're all good friends, you don't have that kind of uh, connection that someone would have growing up together. So that that definitely was a challenge sometimes. Um, and you know, you speak to anyone that goes into um, business with their family; it's uh, it's not an easy ride. Now, just changing topics for a moment. Um, you know, obviously, you, you did a very large uh, funding round this year back in, uh, I believe it was March. Um, how has and you know by the way it's been some you know spectacular names that you know shows real sort of you know confidence in uh, the tremendous work you're doing but how how is that sort of taking large outside investment how is that sort of how has that journey been and and how has that changed the sort of way you approach things or 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 hasn't it yeah i mean it's it's made us take things um um dare i say it more seriously um <laughs> I mean, when you're, you know, when it's just an idea and you're just kind of getting things off the ground, um, you know, the only people that you can let down are yourselves. Um, and obviously, you know, we don't want to do that. But when you start to take outside money, obviously expectations 
uh, are there, uh, pressure, extra pressure is there, but also that comes with um, a real kind of um, some extra learning and knowledge. I think for us, we've been extremely lucky to have a cross-section of great investors, which um, we've kind of picked to all add a, a, a different dynamic to the business. So, you know, we've got our cultural, um, our, our cultural, um, well, our culture inside the business, but we've definitely got like an outside culture, which both of them are, are joined. Um, and that's made up of um, our investors as well. And did your did your investors have to see the vision of what you're doing in this and be sold on it in the same way that the initial set of landlords and and agents that you had to prove the model to, uh, or was it a different experience? Um, so, if I understand that correctly, that so was it a different sell uh, getting initial traction with the platform compared to investment? Yeah, let me rephrase the question. So, did you find uh, that? bringing investors on board required the same kind of sales process as re was required in the early years of selling into agencies and landlords? In the early days, yes. Yes, I do. Um, I think in the early days of raising money, um, it's, a, it's a much more of a sales pitch. You know, um, I think you've got different degrees of, uh, of, uh, of that and depending on how much traction you have. But, you know, if you've got none or very little traction, you, you know, you're out there convincing them that you understand uh, this problem. You are the people to fix it and you've got a great plan. None of which you've really got any proof points around uh, compared to um, if you were a, a second or third time founder. Uh, and, and what was that early approach? How did you, you know, was it a very systematic approach? Was it a function of your traction that they came to you? You know, how was that early journey? How did you go about the process of knocking on doors and, and not only selling your vision, but also just, you know, even first making that connection? So we got the MVP uh, out the door. Um, and the MVP is the minimum viable product. Is that right? Yeah. So we got that out the door and, and for us, it was like, let's get people to use it. Let's get state agents to use it. So we were around selling to estate agents. And while doing that, we were trying to raise money. And um, there were loads of, uh, so, you know, we, we kind of hit our network hard. Um, Philip had raised money before from, from um, some investors. So we had that network to tip it, uh, to tap into. I didn't really have a network, but I knew people that were uh, in that kind of area. So we just started loads and loads of meetings. And I think we went to probably about 20 early on. And funny thing is, is I, they all said either maybe or yes, but none of them invested. Um, I don't know whether that's a function of, of, of a lot of UK angels, whether they like um, the power of saying, yes, I will invest and then not. Um, and they don't want to say no, but that was a really tough, um, you know, tough lesson for us to learn is, you know, our first meeting we went to for investment and they said, yeah, it's great. I'll send you over a term sheet and nothing. Yeah. Better to have a fast no than a drawn out maybe. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's still, I really hope that if I'm in ever in the position where, um, I start investing in people, um, you know, we get a bit more bandwidth. Um, 
I would definitely say, look, you know, if, if we're going to do this, I'll say it. If not, I'll tell you straight away. Um, but, but funnily enough, we went to one meeting of an estate agency um, that uh, we weren't sure whether we were pitching for them to use it or, or pitching for investment um, because they said they might be interested in both. But we had this, I had a really good feeling that day. It was a really sunny, um, sunny day. Um, and we explained it to them. They said, absolutely get it. Obviously, the product's not where it should be. We'll give you some money. And when you get it to place, we'll use it as an estate agency group. And that was our first foot in the door, which allowed us to kind of develop more, get the traction. And once we got the estate agency group on, demonstrate to, to more sophisticated um, investors that actually, hey, we've got some traction here, so uh, why not invest? And, and how did the approach change when you shifted from you know, the angel investment to VCs? What, how, how did you go about hitting their sort of benchmarks? Because you know, a, a lot of VCs we've, we've talked to have, you know, have this sort of cookie cutter sort of you know, founder, technical co-founder, certain level of traction. You know, how did you approach making sure you were hitting the right VCs with the right benchmarks? So initially we didn't because we weren't, um, we didn't really think about that. Um, I know it sounds quite naive, um, or maybe we did, but maybe we didn't care. Maybe we were just like, um, we're just going to go out there and talk to everyone, create some noise. Um, and, um, and there was definitely some people that wanted more traction than others and, uh, and it to be proven out more. Um, but, I always remember one day, I think we were sat around in the pub um, and I was saying to the guys, oh, look, this, you know, it's just not, we're not moving quick enough. Like no one seems to, um, you know, no one's coming to us and offering us money. And um, I, I just generally frustrated with the speed that things are moving at. And then we got on to, I got on to saying, oh, look at all these incumbents on Twitter. Look at these, look what they're talking about. Look how many Twitter followers they've got. Um, and, um, and then I jokingly said, well, I'll make us feel better. I'll buy some. So I spent 30 quid and bought some Twitter followers uh, as a bit of a joke when we were, um, when we were all around having beers. Um, and then two days later, we got an email from Index Ventures um, saying, hey, look, uh, we want to talk to you. Uh, we've seen you kind of, um, people are talking about you. So he came in and we said, oh, look, thank you very much. And uh, can we just ask like why, uh, how you found us? And, and they said, well, uh, we've got this really advanced algorithm and um, you know, you've popped up on our radar through um, spiking on Twitter and we can see that people really like your platform. <laughs> Uh, and it all came from thirty pounds worth of Twitter followers. And legitimate faking it till you make it. Yeah, legitimate. And and actually, they didn't invest, but they introduced our investor um, that did invest in that round. Before that happened, you know, you guys are sitting around the pub and you know questioning whether or not it's working. Did you ever feel like maybe it's time to you know throw it in? Uh, no, not really. It was a really weird thing. Um, when I think back and whether I'm looking back in rose tinted glasses, but there was always this, no, we're going to make it work. Um, if it's, if it's the product, we'll change the product. Um, there's, there's an opportunity out here and, uh, no one's doing it. So we will do it and, um, we will keep on changing things until we, we make it work. Um, 
So there was this kind of relentlessness there where we just didn't stop. But I want to come back to that in a moment and understand a little bit more about how you personally found that resilience and uh, relentlessness. We'll get back to that in a moment. Up next, we're going to get a little bit more personal and see the human side of Richard White. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. So now we're just going to take a, a look into a little bit more of the personal questions here with Richard and, you know, see the person, you know, behind the real estate tech company that's not just a, you know, a tech-focused person, not just a real estate person, uh, but also, hopefully, an interesting human being. So uh, let's, uh, let's, get, let's get it personal. So Richard, you mentioned that you, uh, school wasn't your thing. Tell us what you were like as a student. What were your favorite subjects and uh, what didn't you quite like about school? Yeah, like really early days, I really, I just didn't really like school. Um, I was heavily dyslexic and it was felt like I was in the bottom of the class and um, I was put with a, um, in the kind of special ed um, classes. And uh, for me, I just felt like I didn't fit in there um, and I wasn't a special ed uh, child. Um, so uh, that, that was pretty tough. Um, and I just didn't see the point to school um, because um, what they were trying to teach in these special ed classes was like really basic stuff. Um, and just because I couldn't spell or um, I found certain things hard didn't mean that, you know, I wasn't intelligent. Um, and I think that's a running theme throughout my kind of school history is being always feeling like I've got a lot more to give. And having teachers uh, zero in on, you know, as, uh, in all the mistakes I made writing an essay um, or that I didn't structure uh, my point in the right way, uh, rather than the actual content and trying to understand what I was saying, um, that was frustrating. And I've heard of a lot of entrepreneurs who've had dyslexia from a young age. And do you think there's a common thread there between, you know, struggles in the early days of school and what that grants in you and your later entrepreneurial years? Yeah. So I think definitely for me, there is, um, I think there's a real sense in problem solving. Um, you've, when you've got an issue, um, whether it's, um, struggling to spell or, or whatever it is, um, you find coping mechanisms to get around uh, those issues so they don't become issues. Um, and it teaches you from a very, very early age to actually, yeah, this might be a problem, but it doesn't have to be. And just because you don't know your times table doesn't mean that actually you can't get the same output as someone else if you find like a, a way around it. Yeah, and I don't know if you get a uh, you get Shark Tank over there in the UK, but uh, the TV show here uh, in the US, on, I think it was yes. the Dragons Den in the UK. Yeah, it's uh, yeah th three of the three of the five actual sharks on on Shark Tank are, are dyslexic. So uh, you know you're uh, you're in very good company there. So uh, 
you know, just uh, sort of moving on and, you know, thinking about, you know, you know, you're, you're, you work for a technology company. What's, what's an app on your phone that would sort of surprise people? What's an app on my phone? Uh, let me have a look. I mean, obviously everybody has their social media accounts. Everybody, you know, has sort of some sort of payments or Venmo or, you know, some, whatever the new sort of payment technology is, but what's, what's one that sort of would, uh, you know, would shock people if they were, were snooping around on your phone? Um, so I'd either say, um, I mean, I wouldn't say it would shock people, but it's quite interesting. Um, there is an app um, for my cryotherapy. Cryotherapy. Doesn't that mean usually you're freezing your head so they can cure your diseases 100 years from now? No, say so this is uh, this is where they freeze uh, freeze well put you in a freezing tank um, for three minutes down to about a uh, minus 130 140. And and how often do you do that? Uh, it depends. Like um, I do it um, for energy um, and for mental health. Um, I find that it really gives me. Uh, clearer thinking um, and helps my energy levels. I mean, lots of people do it for sports recovery, um, but uh, if I'm going through a, spe- a, a, a specifically uh, stressful time or a, a time that I need to be on my game, uh, I'll go once a day, um, you know, around that period. Do you feel like Han Solo getting trapped in carbonite when you're in the cryo yeah. chamber? Yeah, apart from wearing big clogs when you go in as well, so you look a bit silly. I'm, I'm guessing that's a Star Wars reference. I mean, I've actually, I've actually never watched it. Wow. So surprising. Please leave the room. <laughs> I guess the- I'm probably like the only you know, tech entrepreneur that has probably never seen Star Trek or Star Wars, but uh, we'll, we'll, save that. <laughs> we'll save that for... That could probably be an interview one day. That's going to be a chat after class. So obviously, uh, you know, we're, we're connected through, uh, you're, you're in the UK and, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of have to ask it. I briefly lived, uh, you know, for five years in Switzerland. So, uh, you know, a lot of my, uh, you know, friends, uh, friends in Switzerland from, were from, uh, the UK. So I have to ask, you know, who, which football team do you support? Uh, so I'm not into football at all. Uh, really? <laughs> I'm on it. Yeah, really. Um, if there would be one that I'd be into, it uh, would be Norwich, um, because that's where I grew up. Um, but my brother's massively into football, and I'm just not. And just to confirm, this is soccer in the U.S.? Yeah, that, yeah that's, 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 that's I think soccer for the American too. crowd. Sorry, so uh, maybe, I was, maybe I lived abroad too long and just picked up the, I thought the, it other, was the other sort Potter of football. Norwich. Yeah, that doesn't do it for me. No. For the first, Are the, you more of a cricket man yourself? Uh, no. Um, so I don't watch a lot of sport. Um, I find it boring. Um, if we go to an event, so if we went to watch cricket or, or I've been to a football match and it's more experiential, then it's really great. Um, I tend to not do things which, um, I find is a, a bit of a waste of time. Um, yeah. Um, which, I think is part of a problem as well that I have um, where I feel that I need to be adding value uh, or have to be in a value adding scenario all it's, the time. It's, it's that persistence just coming back. You're just, uh, you're too focused on the, the vision. 
I wouldn't say it's ADHD. I wouldn't go that far, but it's uh, it's a, it's definitely a version of that. So what what do you find yourself doing for fun, or is creating a business and working on that a hundred percent of the time uh, your definition of hobby? Uh, yeah, that's that's my hobby basically. Um, that and taking uh, my dog for a walk um, uh, is something that I'm working on. I want to do more for myself. Um, I know it's really, really important, but um, I, I've convinced myself whether it's true or not, there's only a certain amount um, of energy that, that you have and focus on and whether that's um, you know, going to learn a sport or, or whatever or doing a hobby. But I tend to uh, plug in all you- the time and then the, I, I basically go into standby mode when I go, to, uh, when I go home. Uh, which is pretty weird, um, and uh, you can't get any sense out of me. If it's you just... weren't running Good Lord now, uh, what do you think would be your hobby du jour that you jump to besides cryo chambers? Uh, if I wasn't in Good Lord right now, um, I'd probably um, be doing something like climbing or something out, out, outward bound. You know, whitewater canoeing. I used to do that, but don't do it now. Well, Richard, it's uh, yeah. This has been a, a great conversation. Uh, it's been a, a great opportunity to learn about Good Lord, learn about the UK rental market, uh, learn about your your cryo habit, um, and we we like to give our guests the the opportunity to leave us with a sort of final thought um, to reflect on you know their career, their vision. You know, ha- what would be a final thought you would you would leave us with? So the thing that's running through my head. Um, recently is, is really taking stock of, um, of what you're building and the assets that you're building up. And for me, I keep coming back to yourself as being the biggest asset and your knowledge and your learning. Uh, so for me, uh, I try and concentrate on developing my uh, knowledge base on things and my arsenal of uh, of things within myself. Um, that means that if I'm put in any scenario or, you know, I need to go into another business or something else, then I'm not, you know, then I can do that, um, and do it pretty efficient, uh, you know, uh, doing pretty well. Um, and, and actually it's something that I say to a lot of our younger people that start at good Lord. Um, you know, it's really expensive to rent in London and, um, and you know, you're, unless you're a, a really keen saver, um, you know, if in the first year, um, you're not going to be coming away with massives of savings. So if you're not doing that, what, and you leave after a year, what are you walking away with? And it's really understanding, um, you know, other than money and other than all these other things, what are you building up inside yourself through your um, your time yeah, spending no, on things. That's that's great. We we obviously we appreciate your thoughts. We appreciate your time today. And uh, you know, how can people connect with uh, you personally or with uh, with Good Lord? How can people reach out? Yeah. So um, for, for the company, it's best just to go to our website www.goodlord.co. Uh, for me, uh, it'd be Twitter. Uh, I th- think my Twitter handle is. Uh, <laughs> at uh richard c white um uh yeah and just message me on there 
Great. No, we uh, we really appreciate that. Thank you again for taking the time today, and uh, you know, thank you for for listening. And again, this is uh, Richard White, uh, CEO of Good Lord in the UK. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot, Richard. Thank you, Richard. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.